Welcome to the Public Morality. Several years ago, many more than I care to remember, I had the privilege of taking a young undergrad to lunch on several occasions. I was struck by his insatiable curiosity, demonstrated by his need to ask questions. I gave him the moniker The Professor, not as a pejorative, but as demonstrating the certainty that I had that one day a doctoral dissertation was in his future. I am proud to say that not only did that young man earn a doctoral degree, but we are honored to have him on the public morality. From Oakland, California, Joshua Stein is here to discuss the notions of justice. Dr. Joshua Stein, welcome to the public morality. Hi, Byron. Nice to talk to you. And we live in interesting times, Indeed. as the old curse goes. Indeed. Um, I want to begin by having uh, Dr. Stein give me his uh, definition of justice. So, I mean, I come out of this old school, um, not old school, really, but this Rawlsian approach, right, where justice is about trying to make things as um, beneficial as possible for the worst off in our society. Um, Rawls puts forward what he calls the the maximin principle, the idea that we should try and maximize the people who have the least, maximize the the welfare of those who are the worst off in our society. Um, and so that's for me, that's very much the center of of justice. That that for something to be just, for a system to be just, for individual acts to be just, they should promote the welfare of those who need it rather than the advantages of those who can do perfectly well on their own, who are already well situated, who are already um, advantaged. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about in, in the, the empowerment of those in need. And that, and that's the, the essence of the, the liberal, at least the American liberal tradition since, since at least the 1960s. So that's very much kind of where I come out of. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even bother to ask you when I asked for your definition, was it, was it a biblical definition, a social justice definition, a restorative justice definition? Are we talking about something that comes out of Plato's Republic, a legal definition, political? So, well, so the context of your framing is what? <laughs> it is moral, right? It's, it's, it's a, a, a moral definition. It comes out of, well, it comes out of the early 20th century um, literature trying to figure out what um, the open society would look like. Um, the, the definition I gave, the sort of maximum definition, comes from Rawls's A Theory of Justice um, in the 60s, and he developed that literature through at least to the 80s. Um, so that's kind of where the, the my view on this comes from. It's it's a partly political, partly moral definition. It's political in the sense that um, it's supposed to guide the way that we make political decisions, especially decisions about um, how we structure laws, how we structure our tax policy, how we structure um, the general operations of economics, what sorts of things we allow to happen and are clear can't happen. That's that's very um, that's the center of it. Um, the extent to which I mean, the restorative justice stuff. A lot of these ideas have bases that go back earlier, but come kind of after Rawls or really developed in full after Rawls. So um, 
he doesn't especially have anything to say on um, on those movements as specifically. But one of the, the things that you can say about, for example, the restorative justice and social justice movements is that they often involve acknowledging how those who are most vulnerable, who are faring the worst in our society got there and an attempt to correct or improve the lots of those who have historically gotten the short end of the stick, um, often quite deliberately as a matter of social design, right? Mm -hmm. And a matter of historical um, government and social action. Now, when you say Rawls, you refer to Rawls several times. I'm assuming you're talking about John Rawls. And so give us a, a, a Reader's Digest commercial on who John Rawls was. Uh, Rawls was a, a American philosopher at Harvard, and uh, I, I guess he must have started there in the 40s or 50s, but he was at Harvard and published his work, this a theory of justice and a bunch of papers on um, justice, including justice's fairness, um, and sort of became a seminal leader in um, American political theory, basically trying to make sense of... Um, what the founding principles of uh, a government for the people should be, right? What an open society looks like, especially in sort of the post-World War II and Cold War era. Um, after, I mean, we're not really after fascism as we, you know, may talk about periodically, but it, it seemed like in the 50s and 60s that we might be after fascism in some meaningful sense. Um, and so... Uh, trying to sort of reckon with what the um, small L liberal order would look like in that kind of world. Um, so you just call it a, a post-World War II fascism. How about that? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Fascism to electric boogaloo, yeah. if you, if you um, well, well, given, well, given, given that uh, synopsis, how is the notion of justice... Uh, formulated, taking specifically the United States, um, and throughout its existence, um, it has grappled with a civic virtue that touts liberty and equality, but in practice, it has struggled historically on issues of race and gender, sexual orientation, and, and others. So taking your definition of, of, of justice, um, it has it been a moving target in the United States, this sort of definition of justice? I think it's been a moving target everywhere. I mean, one of the challenges that we that we come out of with this, I mean, certainly the, the history of race relations in the United States has its own unique wrinkles. That are, but uh, most of the world at some point has to grapple with the fact that there's a historically dominant group and a bunch of other groups that um, were pivotal to the economic success, the political success, the military success, and so on of a various governing order, but um, we're not treated as citizens, right? So whether we're talking about um, going all the way back and talking about the serfs of feudal Europe, or we're talking about women, or we're talking about um, racial and religious minorities. So I, I think it's in the United States, it's an especially difficult question because there's an explicit commitment to 
equality and the existence of liberty that has not been satisfied historically, often quite clearly has just explicitly has not been satisfied. Yeah. Liberty and justice for everybody, except, you know, most of everybody, except women, except black people, except indigenous people. Right. It's sort of very, very strong bars around who the everybody in those inclusive statements is. Now, for me, the American context is tricky, especially because there's a lot of confusion about how we understand freedom and liberty as concepts. And there's lots of disagreement between what it means. And this is where I think Rawls is especially useful for people to have liberty, right? Does does liberty mean the, the freedom from government action as for example, libertarians will often um, flout, right? From government oversight. Does it mean that the government doesn't play as large an economic role or does it mean something more um, positive that individuals have the ability and the resources and the access to opportunities to pursue the kind of life that's beneficial for them? I mean, Rawls is writing this in in is writing a theory of justice in a in a time when Eisenhower is building highways and the university system is expanding, and we're talking about public infrastructure and the idea that for Rawls, fundamentally, those things have to be in service of the groups that normally wouldn't get social benefits from them. You know, when you when you start to read about the, the history of, of the way that cities were ghettoized through the construction of highways, through the actual designs of these cities, and you say, okay, well, we built all this infrastructure, sometimes accidentally, sometimes explicitly, pretty clearly marginalizing Black and immigrant communities. Okay, well, how do we fix this as we reinvest in infrastructure every couple of decades, which we really have to do? Um, so it, it becomes a question about how does the, the public order, the legal public order, satisfy um, the moral obligations that we have to those who otherwise wouldn't have opportunities? So for um, there are lots of ways that this discussion gets carved up, but a really important one is about whether liberty is um, fleshed out in terms of non-interference or is fleshed out in terms of um, helping individuals to uh, realize certain basic um, opportunities that they might have or might need in order to pursue a good life, right? If, you, if you're coming from a situation where there aren't educational resources, but you want to pursue an education, then that's a pretty serious sense in which your liberty is curtailed. And that's a thing that I think America was grappling with back in the 50s and is still grappling with now, right? To what extent does do, do core founding concepts like liberty and freedom, which are much more um, I think much more uh, politically popular in the U.S. than justice sometimes is. Um, what do those mean in the context where some groups historically aren't able to go to school, right? Aren't able to um, start their own business or give back to their community in the relevant ways 
uh, or or, or partic even participate in society through things like voting, right? It's not just about non-interference. It's about ensuring that you can exercise your rights, mm -hmm. right? So if a guy with a gun is standing outside your polling place, it may not matter that there's no official poll tax. You may be too nervous to go vote, right? right? Securing the polls doesn't just mean, for example, doesn't just mean the government shall not interfere in imposing discriminatory measures, but also has to mean something like making sure that it's safe for, for folks in, in communities that historically are disenfranchised can actually get there, can actually vote, whether that means souls to the polls or whatever, right, have those opportunities. Um, and that, I think, is, is a big challenge in where we're at. Now you asked about the American, that, that's right. for me, the American, the uniquely American part of this is that the, the American public consciousness, a, awareness of who we are and what we say in our founding is about freedom, is about liberty, but we often have pretty substantial disagreements about what that means and what that looks like. Well, John, um, so I think that's, that's the moral commitment. Well, 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 but if you, if any Republican form of government, small r, any Republican form of government, um, to, uh, has to have a civic virtue, which is sort of like your mission statement. And so implicit in, in the civic virtue of the United States is some notion of a moral order. So I guess my question to you would be, can you have justice in, in, a, in a society like America and, and not have some agreed upon moral order? Is that even possible? So that, I think that's a big part of what people were wrestling with in the in the post World War II era. You had these societies who were s sort of becoming slowly becoming post colonial, right? They weren't they didn't want to be nationalist because we had just seen Hirohito and Hitler and Mussolini, and we said, eh, maybe we want to kind of get away from this historical understanding of national identity that's very rigid and. And, and, and fascists shaped. Um, so um, one of the people who was very influential on me is a, a guy named Isaiah Berlin, who actually was a, a German Jew who was living in New Zealand during World War II. Um, and he wrote a book called um, The Open Society and Its Enemies. Actually, it's two, it's two books. And one of the things he, he says in the book is, you know, you want to build a society that can allow for a wide range of views, a wide range of people who want to live different kinds of lives, um, who come from different backgrounds, who may personally have different values. How do we build a society that has a public morality, right, that says we're going to be in service to people while acknowledging lots of the individual members are going to disagree about what that should be? And that, I think, is the, is the challenge, is, is, how, is, is absolutely the sort of thing that you're that you're touching on here which is important now the the reason that we come back to doing best that that Rawls comes back to this idea of doing best by those who are worst off is because that's a sort of to the extent that there is a a, a public morality in those sorts of countries ensuring that individuals can advance can help themselves can have the opportunities to pursue the kinds of lives that they want, acknowledging that that may be very different for two, for two otherwise similarly situated people, is a part of what living in the open society is about, 
right? If, if, if Tim wants to go to college and Sally doesn't want to go to college, well, they should both have the opportunity and someone can say yes and someone can say no, right? If someone wants to start a small business or someone wants to work for a big company, they should have the ability to make those kinds of decisions and they should be in a position where they can make those without fear of their life falling apart because of an accident, right? Because they got cancer or because, you know, so, or, or because of a tragic circumstance, right? Something that happens. So the goal for, for this kind of view is, look, we want everyone to be able to broadly within some limits pursue life as they think it will be good for them, right? If, if you have religious values that you want to live, you should be, you should have the ability to live them without government interference, without social interference. People should respect your right to, to act in that way within limits. Um, but we don't want to have a, a moral order that says, no, you have to live life this way. No, you have to live life that way. You can't, you have to go to college. You have to, you have to work straight out of high school. You have to have kids at such and such an age. We don't want a society that's structured that way. Um, so that's, I think, the, the that's a moral commitment, right? That's a commitment of a social and political order to say we want to have a diverse society um, across a bunch of different axes, whether that's racial, religious, economic, um, rural versus urban, right? All of these sorts of different ways of going about living your life. You want everyone to be able to pursue their view of what's good for them in a way that they can be successful mm. uh, or at least have the opportunity to be successful because maybe not everyone can live the dream but mm. you know we're not all steph curry but well uh he you throw you throw in um let me just say to our listeners that um your comment about Steph Curry is uh, an ode to our shared allegiance to the to the Golden State Warriors. So I'll just I'll just throw that in. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, let me let, let, let's let's go to some specifics, uh, some real world, and have you have and toss those around. In the work of, in the wake, I should say, of the Ahmad um, Arbery verdict, you know. A number of people declared that the, the guilty verdict of the three individuals um, uh, convicted of killing Ahmaud Arbery, it was justice for the victim's family. How do you hear that, that statement, justice for the victim's family? So the, there, there are sort of two, two layers to this. The first layer, I think, is, is the reflexive one. And when I listen to Ahmaud's mom talk, especially, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but, but when I listen to her, she's given some public statements and you say, look, there's not going to be justice. This is a mother who lost a son, right? This is this is a tragedy. There's there is a, a a real sense in which there just is no justice there, right? There this is a this is a young person who was killed, who was, I mean, murdered in a in a horrible public way in a really atrocious racist crime, right? There's not a we can talk about what punishment might be appropriate, but the idea that the imposition of punishment is justice, it, there, there's no verdict. There's just a close enough, right? That So that's the first layer, right? There's, okay, look, we can talk about it. We The, just, the carceral system did as much as it kind of can in these sorts of situations to try and rectify that. 
but it's it's limited, right? There is no, you can't restore his life, right? That's the that, that's not gonna happen. The other is, and and this is I think the part that really bothers me when I hear that declaration, is that this came really close to not happening, right? I mean, the the, the verdict in the Aubrey case, it, there was a, a very close set of possibilities where he's where these guys aren't prosecuted, where we have the maybe we don't have the cell video, right? If we don't have the cell video, there's no there's no prosecution. If we don't get multiple layers of higher government management telling DAs, no, we really have to investigate and prosecute this, right? Because now we're seeing the first DA who declined to to pursue charges against these guys getting prosecuted for failing, right? Mm -hmm. These guys, they almost got off at several points. And that really illustrates to me that we got the right verdict in this case, or as close to the right verdict as we're likely to ever get. But we came very close to not getting it. We came very close to seeing an, an egregious, obvious case go untried, go unconvicted. And that to me should really raise some worries, right? I mean, when we talk about these sorts of cases, okay, what do you actually need to go right in order to get something that feels like a very low bar to many of us, right? Which is that people who commit racist murders in broad daylight go to jail, right? Like that seems like a very low bar to clear. And and we, we, in lots of these cases, we haven't cleared that bar, right? I mean, in lots of these cases, we've seen how difficult it is, you know, whether that's the, the Aubrey case or the Breonna Taylor case, right? Cases that seem incredibly clear being stifled by the powers of, of, individuals who are positioned to use their discretion to protect people who engage in these kinds of crimes, people who, you know, kill black men in the streets, right? I mean, in this case, very literally, that's what happened. And so that I think is the, is a big worry, right? That, that should be a big worry. Let, let me just say for our listeners that uh, the name of um, Arbery's mother, Ahmaud Arbery's mother is Wanda uh, Cooper Jones. Um, yeah. That, 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 that was, right. that, that was her name. Um, then I guess I guess my follow-up question to you then, in, in many of these high-profile cases where you we just talked about Am- Ahmaud Arbery and you mentioned Breonna Taylor, um, have we um, sort of linked, has justice become a euphemism for our desired outcome? In, in other words, let's take the Kyle Rittenhouse, for those that thought Kyle Rittenhouse was guilty, Though he was acquitted, that's not justice. But Ahmaud Arbery, for those who wanted those convicted, um, were found guilty, uh, that is justice. So so has justice become sort of a euphemism for the outcome that we want? Um, I, I mean, our moral judgment weighs in in what we think is justice, right? To, to see to see morality done what we believe to be morality done is always going to be a feature of what we think is is just right if, if I see you know sometimes we talk about these things in terms of the schoolyard 
right? You know, you see the kid who's who's being a jerk fall down. Is that justice? Well, there's some schadenfreude there. Maybe there's some some acknowledgement that like maybe there was something cosmic going on there. But look, I mean, one of the challenges with these sorts of cases is, you know, you want to see a system where um, cases are tried on their merits, cases are are decided by um, the appropriate judicial values that, that we have. And we might disagree in lots of cases. I mean, the Rittenhouse case is one that's incredibly complicated from a number of standpoints, several of which are just technical legal issues, which is that it's not super clear how any of this Wisconsin law applies in cases like this. Now, the fact that that case was had the outcome that it did, the fact that he was acquitted, you say, well, look, sometimes we're not gonna get the verdicts that we want, right? And we can say, and the system did what it did and we respect the result more or less. Okay. The question when you look at a case like that is whether or not we believe that things like his political, like his role as a political figure, Rittenhouse's role as a political figure played a role in the verdict rather than the circumstances. And that I think is where things here get really troubling. I don't want a case to be tried because someone is a prominent public figure or vice versa. I, it should be tried. And that's the challenge I think with a lot of these cases is that, you know, you mentioned there being high profile and that's part of what drives this. I want the more the moral outcome I like that I believe is, is the correct one in those kinds of cases. Well, Dr. Simon, since you mentioned the, the Rittenhouse case, let me, let me just uh, jump in here. You know, I, I um, read the Wisconsin law on self-defense. It gives a really wide berth to those who claim self-defense. And, and so like many others, um, I, I was not surprised that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. It didn't surprise me at all, given how the Wisconsin law was written. Um, that said, even with the law as it is, I think a number of people, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, would find it difficult if the exact same circumstances that Kyle Rittenhouse was a person of color, if he was a black man, if he was a Hispanic man, if he was white and member of the LGBT community. Just a lot of people have a, a hard time seeing the same outcome uh, Get, even given the law, um, your thoughts on that? I, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind here, and, and obviously you know this, this quite well, and I suspect your listeners do too, is that just because something is legal doesn't mean it's just, right? Just because it's the case that the Wisconsin law provides for the exculpation of, of someone who engaged in what strikes us as a grossly immoral act right that seems like he went out looking for a fight and got one and killed some people and you say well see it doesn't seem like we want to call that self-defense but that's what the law says it is right we shouldn't pretend that that being legal makes it is the end of the conversation i i agree that if we look at cases like this and we say look look at so the case that comes up a lot is is crystal kaiser who was um tried for, for who was a, a victim of sex trafficking 
victim of in sex Wisconsin. trafficking you by see, all of she was in like Wisconsin. 17, she was 17 at the she time. Was, she was 17 at the time. She killed the guy who allegedly trafficked her. Um, and and so and was tried. And there was a serious question in that case as to whether Wisconsin's self-defense law would protect her. Now, in that kind of a case, you look and you say, okay, it seems like she got she had a much harder time getting the pursuit of what was clearly a a, a just verdict than Rittenhouse did. Um, and and that should worry us, right? It should worry us that it seems like social positioning of Rittenhouse um, resulted in his having access to resources, to a favorable judge, perhaps even to a favorable jury that he might not otherwise have had um, in a way that allowed for this sort of admittedly very broad, very weird sort of uh, legal apparatus around self-defense in Wisconsin to come out in his favor. And that wouldn't have happened in um, an ordinary case to the extent that there can be an ordinary case like that. I think, I mean, one of the challenges is the, the profile of the case, right? When a case becomes symbolic, when a case becomes um, an object of social understanding, it becomes very, very difficult for us to separate um, our understanding of the procedure and fair application of the law from our view about what a just outcome should be across these cases, right? We think of it as representative. Now, I, I, I think the Rittenhouse verdict was really pretty bad, as probably is clear from my tone. I think there were some serious issues with how the prosecution handled themselves, with how the judge handled himself. But I don't want to substitute that for my judgment on all such cases, right? I, I mean, we have cases where we want to believe that this is the kind of precedent center, but but it's not really. I mean, that's not the way that these sorts of things work in our in our judicial system. Um, the reason that I it, it's different from the cases like Arbery, where you're trying to grasp and see that justice works, that justice is there in the hardest cases. You know, Rittenhouse was not the most disadvantaged member of our society, right? It, he, he's a, by the time he went to trial, he was a right-wing celebrity, right? He was a, he was raising money through um, C-list right-wing actors, right? And so, for me, I don't want that case shouldn't be the test case for justice, just on the, to whether the system is just. It can illustrate some problems, and it certainly does. Just as you know, the case of of the you know rich white kid who gets away with sexual assault with no um, jail time is is a an illustrative case of some problems. But I, I think in these kinds of cases, one of the things we should look at is. You know, how are we advocating for justice for those who, who, how are we advocating for a system that better improves a lot of those who are worst off? And that's where I think the Aubrey case is really much more important because, you know, if we can't get, I mean, I was listening to Jonathan Capehart, uh, uh, Washington Post, Jonathan Capehart, who is saying, you know, if, if we can't get this right, then what hope is there for basically anything else? right, on, on matters of race. If we can't get something where there's video, there's three guys who are pretty clear, 
the defense team has been was pretty clear in illustrating that they were pretty racist themselves in their conduct of the trial. You know, we don't want any black pastors in the gallery, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, if we can't get a case like that right, then what hope is there? Whereas the Rittenhouse case, I think you rightly note, is much more complicated and and raises a bunch of a specter of other issues. And that's where I think that to the extent that these cases provide some insight into where we're at as a country, that's what it really should help us grapple with. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Joshua Stein, and we're talking about the, the, the notions of justice. And Dr. Stein, I... Um, as, as we're having this conversation, I, I'm thinking about um, sort of uh, that um, that American justice, as it is practiced, is you know based on some of your responses, something closely aligned, you know, sort of to the the uh, the, the um, initial challenge uh, in the, to Socrates and, and Plato's Republic that justice reflects the interest of the stronger party, and throughout your discourse, you have been saying frankly, based on the writings of John Rawls and your own thinking, just the opposite? Well, I, so I think that the, the Socratic question the, the, is right in the sense that justice will tend to be in a society uh, reflective of those in power. The purpose of Rawls, in my view, I, Rawls himself is a little unclear on this, is that in order to achieve an outcome that is better balanced, that provides greater fairness, one has to correct in favor of those who don't have power. One has to try and give those who don't have the opportunity, the resources, the, the political capital, um, the financial capital even, to defend themselves. Um, has to have a system which provides the resources and the, the recognition of that disadvantage, right? It's, it's about saying, yeah, look, if, if the state just had, could do what the state wanted and that was just, then it would just favor the people who already have power because those are the people who can wield influence, right? What it is to have power is partly constitutive of the ability to use vehicles of the state to use the authorities of, of government and society for one's own interest. And we need to have a corrective on that. So part of it is a, is a, is a direct pushback to say, it's not what the state says is right. It's that the state has to recognize that those who are disadvantaged are the ones that have to be prioritized because otherwise they're going to get overlooked. And Otherwise, they're going to get trampled. Mm -hmm. And historically, I mean, I, I'm, you're giving your last answer. I'm thinking uh, the state, uh, I'm using it metaphorically, the state um, was okay with slavery. It was okay um, with, with um, segregation. It was okay that women couldn't vote. It was okay uh, 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 in opposition to marriage equality. So, so I, I hear you saying historically at some point, those questions have to be raised and, and it has to have some corrective measures. And then we, we have done that in some, in some regards. Well, yeah, we absolutely, we, there are moments where we have considered the moral, we in the, in the collective, right. Have considered the, the, the moral plight of certain parts of our communities and said, no, this isn't right. We can't do this. Now, often we do it slowly and with great resistance and through great difficulty 
you know, it wasn't like we, for the marriage equality example, right? It's not like we thought about marriage equality and said, you know what? People really should have access to spousal benefits. And we all agreed and we all got like, I mean, we were both products of California during Proposition 8. So we remember the campaign. I mean, I remember the stuff that came up around your your church and, and <laughs> the idea of, you know, these are the sorts of things like we grapple with them constantly. And the, we shouldn't take it to be the case that once a particular social order has been established that has voting rights, that that's it. Right, we have to keep kind of working on these sorts of issues. Right, they're constant, um, and they're constant sources of updating. Do, do does everyone have equal rights in the United States right now? Look, even if you have a very optimistic view about the state of race relations, and the state of LGBTQ equality, and the state of women's rights, even if you have a very optimistic view about that, there's still a lot of work to do. Right. So, so a part of this is about saying, look. There has to be a sort of constant advocacy for those who need, who, for those who can't, on behalf of those who can't advocate for themselves, trying to position those people as the center of our moral discourse, rather than the powerful and those who can speak quite effectively and loudly um, as the center of our political and moral discourse, which it usually is. I mean, let's be real. The, often the, the voices that are loudest are the people who have the who already have a big podium, right? Who already have a big microphone, right? right? That's the that's the way it's going to work. And so, um, one of the things that's interesting since you brought up Plato and Socrates, Socrates is as a as a character to the extent that Socrates is a historical person. This is not so clear. Socrates is writing from a position of some social prestige, but very little actual political power. Right, he's a, a an enslaved man or a formerly enslaved man who is teaching, so he has some prestige within his own students. But he's not in the government. The government doesn't particularly like him. You know, he he's viewed as an outsider and a radical. Plato, by contrast, by the time Plato is largely writing, does have quite a bit of political power and clout. And Plato winds up with a very state-centered understanding of how justice and power are implemented in a society. I mean, the Republic is a very clear guide to building a society that centers certain kinds of power. And one wonders, I mean, it's it's hard to look. And again, we don't know a lot about the historical Socrates. We know Plato's books and there are some other students of Socrates who wrote about him. But, you know, we kind of get Socrates by way of Plato. And so one wonders, did Socrates have a better understanding of this perhaps than, than the guy who's telling us about Socrates? Because he was himself a disadvantaged guy who at, in his older years had students, right? Had people who were listening to him, but probably didn't through most of his life and probably didn't have any, or at least had very little political and social influence. Mm. Uh, you know, that's the kind of group we should be centering. You, you mentioned um, Proposition 8. Um, it's certainly one that I, I, I remember well for some of the reasons you referenced. Um, but I, I guess in a, in a larger sense, um, that initiative process in California, um, because it's one, this is sort of a strict, direct democracy based on majority rule, 
it becomes easy to conflate that the what the majority wants is justice. And so when you have this slow overturning, as you, as you did in Oberfeld versus Hodges, a Supreme Court ruling in what, 20, 2013, 2014, that yeah, that was that was unjust because it overruled the majority and how do you square those if if justice is 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 to be at the epicenter so this is where i think the the rawlsian approach is really important because um rawls's view of justice is about prioritizing the interests of the disadvantaged right and and if the majority says we're all going to get together and exploit the disadvantaged Right. I mean, they usually wouldn't frame it that way, but in lots of practical context, that is a thing that happened. Um, Or even in, you know, someone might say, well, look, the problem with, you know, the exploitation of 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 women, for example, is that it wouldn't have been popular with the majority if the majority had included women. Okay, well, that's that's true. You know, I one might suspect that if women's positions had been considered. As equal then our understanding of what the majority wanted would have been different. But it shouldn't matter. If if an ethnic minority is the target of the majority in a society, that's unjust, right? The the will of the majority can itself be in favor of of a lack of justice in those sorts of cases. As far as Rawls's um, understanding of it and my understanding of it goes, that's not really an issue, right? The, the majority, if the majority is just, it will not be because they are the majority. It will be accidental. It will be accidental to that feature, right? We shouldn't think of what the majority wants as um, deter, uh, dispositive of a just outcome because lots of the time the majority wants things that are um, problematic and lots of the times the majority doesn't, have a clear-cut enough position for us to to say um you know and or the the general public may not have an understanding i mean one of the challenges the bond system in cal the this uh proposition system in california where we take majority votes on lots and lots of issues creates lots of problems around um for example things like pharmaceutical prices which was an issue in the proposition system right it did the public have a good understanding of what was going on there Right? Did the public understand what they individually and collectively wanted? Right? I mean, in lots of cases, the majority doesn't think that way. Um, so I, I think it, it's it's challenging to suggest. Right, the majority of people can vote for very unjust outcomes. Right, they can elect dictatorial leaders, power-hungry leaders, and often do so quite happily. Um, though the, the the most recent guy didn't get a majority in either case, but that's a kind of a separate dig. Um, you want to be able to say, look, the grounding principle here isn't majoritarianism. It's not most of us like this, so we're going to do it. It's not like planning what movie you're going to go see with your buddies, right? It It's about making sure that the buddy who's least the person in your society who's least um, advantaged isn't getting the short end of the stick all the time right isn't getting it worse than the guy who's got the biggest house and and the biggest bank account right and that's 
that's where the Rawlsian approach is, is a rejection of majoritarianism, right? We don't want the majority to, to steer our society. You know, we don't want the, whatever it was, 80 plus percent of people who disapproved of the work of Dr. King back in the 60s to be dispositive of our social attitude towards his, his views, right? That, that's the sort of thing we have to be care- really careful about. And amazingly, that poll changed like immediately after he was assassinated. So everybody suddenly became on Dr. King's side uh, on April the fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. Finally, you know, in 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 a sort of uh, strange way, we talked earlier about how my outcome, my desired outcome, I can equate to justice in in some of these high-profile verdicts. Um, And then you just talked about majoritarianism. Uh, and what the majority wants, and uh, and so the majority's desired outcome could th- then again be considered um, justice. Are we not at the end talking about um, varying self-interests and in, in how those are, are, are applied in a, in a pluralistic society? So I, I think there is an extent to which certain areas of government and public policy will reflect kinds of self-interest, will reflect um, varieties of self-interest, things like what industries are regulated, things like how they're regulated. Those sorts of decisions will have kinds of self-interest in there. But in lots of these cases, you know, look, I'm I'm a, a Jewish kid from Oakland. The extent to which the Aubrey verdict personally reflects any self-interest on my part is very limited. Um, it, it may reflect the interest of lots of my friends. You know, it may reflect the interest of lots of people around me, but that doesn't have a, a huge bearing on my understanding of whether the outcome is just or fair, right? Someone, you, there, are, there are reasonable questions about whether people will limit their own self-interest in cases where justice requires that they give up some of theirs. And this is something I think that is at the deep moral, that is a deep moral problem in America, which is that people don't really don't wanna do that here. They really don't wanna, you know, stay inside for a couple of weeks to help reduce exposure of, of others to serious illness, especially immunocompromised and, and elderly people. So the idea of sacrificing self-interest in pursuit of, a, of an outcome that helps out those in need is often very difficult. Um, and we see pretty vividly in those cases um, how what is just might and often and sometimes does differ from our own self-interest. Um, and I think we should, I, I mean, I think we should take that seriously that, that you know, are you going to be in favor of, of a, a just outcome, an outcome that helps the disadvantaged when that cuts against you, when you're, when you're the one who's advantaged, when you're the one who has to give something up? And that's something I think we as a society should take more seriously um, because I think the self-interest question is raising the stakes of that, um, raises the possibility that we might fail. Dr. Joshua Stein. Thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on, on the public morality and giving me, giving me some of your well-thought-out and reasoned responses. 
It's been an honor to speak with you. Always, always fun. Always an honor. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Byron. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.